0: the greatest questions asked by man has been, and still is, are we alone in the universe? And coupled with that is, does God exist? Is there more than just this tattered old existence? What is the truth? And can we know the truth? Society at large is becoming more and more comfortable with this idea of my truth or your truth what is your truth this this is now the the, the uh, charter of the polled new world that uh, that we've embarked in this century. Your truth is the only one that matters, but if that is so then meaning is done away with somehow many among the Millennials and our postmodern intellectuals have thought to have liberated themselves by evicting the idea of accountability and that mortality is simply another form of control manufactured by the quote-unquote establishment. We are free as long as we tolerate everyone. As long as we tolerate everyone and all and hurt no one at all. I suppose in a world of almost 7 billion people living with their own truth, this utopia can be accomplished, maybe. But in a pluralistic world, ever-growing intolerant of opposing viewpoints, especially on matters such as organized religion, God, um, race, sexuality... And the idea of absolute truth—how how can anyone think that such a utopia can be realized? There's um, a uh, psychologist named Hobart Mower, uh, and um, he he says, for several decades, we psychologists looked upon the whole matter of sin and moral accountability as a great incubus and claimed our liberation from it as epic-making. But at length, we've discovered that to be free in this sense, that is, to have the excuse of being sick rather than sinful, is to court the danger of also becoming lost, in becoming amoral, ethically neutral, and free. We have cut the very roots of our being, lost our deepest sense of selfhood and identity, and with neurotics themselves we find ourselves asking who am I what is my deepest destiny what does living mean now this statement is groundbreaking language to say the least if if there is a word or a concept more hated and more studied it is the nature of sin and such an idea is repugnant to most because if in a recognition of sin one submits to an order in the universe that defines right and wrong good and evil and ends up being accountable to a moral law and a moral being responsible for that law there there isn't anything new in this resistance but it certainly has reached a culmination in our postmodernist society that insists that God is dead, and we have killed him. And those words that were penned by Nietzsche wasn't just musing. He was identifying a movement. But to kill God, one must acknowledge that he was alive to begin with. The presupposition of existence is implied in such a notion. You have all of these philosophers, scientists, historians, intellectuals, and academics over the course of the last millennia spending their time using, writing, and positing over a being that many within these very communities say does not exist, and even more so within this era of postmodernism. For a being who is dead, that's a lot of money spent. Pages printed, voices exhausted, and they still rage on. Does God exist? Now come on, let's really reason together on this. At some point or another, people have asked this question. Atheists, agnostics, Christians, whatever, you name it. And you know what, let's let's forget about who is president, whether you're conservative or liberal, what you believe or don't believe. Just leave all that aside. Does God exist? If we're to be honest about our search for who we are and for what is true, then we must ask the question. I mean, I think you would, after everything we've discussed and looked at, we have to come to that to that question or has the question already been answered one of the most dangerous phrases that's been uttered in our century has been and still is the science is settled what what are the implications of such a statement taken to its logical conclusion that there's nothing more to discover Nothing novel to find, and therefore no exploration to be made? The arrogance of such an idea, especially coming from those who would be thought of as explorers, it just boggles the mind. Can knowledge have an end? And can there be no new thing to find? Thank you. If you want to destroy a man's spirit, tell him there's nothing new to find. What drives the human spirit is the possibility of discovery, of of learning, of, of invention, of exploring the unknown. But there will always be the skeptics and the naysayers. They said... Man will never fly. It it can't be done. Man flew. Then they said, The sound barrier can never be broken. Man broke it. They said, Man could never walk the moon. Man walked on the moon. The pattern seems to be always the same. One side says... We can. Another side another side says you can't. One side says, It's it's possible. Another chimes in and says, It's impossible. And it always seems to be the elite and the intellectual establishment that cannot allow for change. For something new, for a settled order to be disrupted by a truth that already exists. If, if the question of God's existence has been settled, science will have to give an explanation to the division on the issue within their own ranks. For surely settled science must be obvious and must have no other possible outcomes. What's fascinating about the proclamation made by Nietzsche is that he doesn't leave it there. He also gives us the prognostication, if you will, of murdering God or the murdering of God. He he says, the greatest recent event that God is dead that the belief in the Christian God has become unbelievable, is already starting to cast its first shadow over Europe. To those few, at least whose eyes, or the suspicion in whose eyes is strong and subtle enough for this spectacle, some kind of sun seems to have set, some old deep trust turned into doubt. To them, our world must appear more autumnal, more mistrustful, stranger, older, But in the main one might say, for many people's power of comprehension, the event is itself far too great, distant, and out of the way, even for its tidings to be thought of as having arrived yet. Even less may one suppose many to know at all what this event really means. And now that this faith has been undermined, how much? how much must collapse, because it was built on this faith, leaned on it, had grown into it, for example, our entire European morality. This long, dense succession of demolition, destruction, downfall, upheaval that now stands ahead, who would guess enough of it today to play the teacher and herald of this monstrous logic of horror? the prophet of deep darkness, and an eclipse of the sun the like of which has probably never before existed on earth? There's no mincing words here. He doesn't deny the consequences of such an act, this killing of God. It's a necessary evil according to him, but nonetheless one that must and will occur. The complete, quote, demolition, destruction, downfall, upheaval that lies ahead. That's the consequence of killing God, according to Nietzsche. And the collapse of morality, a deep darkness, and an eclipse of the sun that has never existed before on earth. That's absolutely incredible. And this bit of prophecy was made on the edge of the 20th century, 1882 to be exact. Now, one might argue, we're still here, aren't we? Well, yeah, humanity's still here, but from where have we emerged? Fast forward from Nietzsche to 2019, and one might say, things have been as they've always been before. Wars, political upheaval, division, corruption, disasters, disease... But hey, technological advances have been made. We have a world that is more connected than ever before. There's optimism for the future. (laughs) Lest we forget that Nietzsche's future did come true. And it's now in our past. And yet, it's there for everyone to see if they will just look. The 20th century became one of the bloodiest centuries of the last 10 combined. And how is it that in a time where there's been so much advancement, so much amassment of of knowledge in, in science and science and in technology, that we could possibly be a society that is on the brink, more divided and more polarized and more self-absorbed. Yeah, it, It can be said that it's always been like this. Wars, famines, natural disasters, conflict, political corruption, divisions, hatred, indifference. There's nothing new under the sun, right? Nothing has really changed. In fact, we can go as far as to say that a a lot of this turmoil is all the fault of religion. And so if, if there is a God with the condition of the world as it has been, and it is now then surely he must be dead, as Nietzsche wrote. Or that he really isn't out there. It's all an illusion. And the evidence of all of this evil and destruction is proof enough. But that's where it all falls apart, though. How can any rationally thinking human being see the war, see the utter depravity of humanity, and know it is wrong? or even evil. What is the moral compass by which we can make such conclusions? Science can't even explain it. In fact, if we go to our friend Richard Dawkins, who would make sure that we knew that science can no more tell us what is good, let alone what is evil, in this startling statement where he says, There was a well-known television chef who did a stunt recently by cooking human placenta and serving it up as a a pate, fried with shallots, garlic, lime juice, and everything. Everybody said it was delicious. The father had 17 helpings. A scientist can't point out, this is Dawkins saying. A scientist can't, a scientist can point out, as I have done that this is actually an act of cannibalism. Worse, since cloning is such a live issue at the moment, because the placenta is a true genetic clone of the baby, the father was actually eating his own baby's clone. Science can't tell you if it's right or wrong to eat your own baby's clone, but it can tell you that's what you're doing. Then you can decide for yourself whether you think it's right or wrong. In other words, what's he saying? It's all relative. And yet, Dawkins couldn't help but make a determined judgment on the matter. He called it an act of cannibalism, and then goes on to say that the fact that the father was actually eating a clone of his baby makes it worse. How? You just said that it's neither right or wrong, that science can't tell you that. And that's according to Dawkins. So in his own statement, he contradicts himself. There's no logic in this statement. By his own admission, calling it a worse thing, he's already implying that this act is vulgar, wrong. Something that uh, not very many people would agree with and maybe even be repulsed by. But science can't determine morality. So Dawkins is contradicting himself. Which one is it? And as a scientist, if he's pointing out that this is cannibalism, then that should be the end of it. He's a cannibal. Now each person can decide whether what he did is wrong or right. Dawkins is a rather fascinating character because a great deal of his speeches um, and a lot of his interviews and writings reflect a great hostility towards the idea of religion and God. And he's not the only one. He's just one of the louder voices. There, There are a great many who make it their life's mission to show their defiance towards the idea of God or some being that exists in the universe to whom We are all accountable. Science says it has the answers, and to attempt to contradict science is ludicrous. Religion says that it has the answers, but those who are part of a religious community seem to be so judgmental and in some form or another can't help being involved in some debate over what is or what is not acceptable. We must learn to look beyond these debates, beyond the arguments, to actually see what's right in front of us. What is the truth saying? John Locke says, Without natural law, there would be neither virtue nor vice, neither the reward of goodness nor the punishment of evil. There is no fault, no guilt, where there is no law. Everything would have to depend on human will, and since there would be nothing to demand dutiful action... It seems that man would not be bound to do anything but what utility or pleasure might recommend or what a blind and lawless impulse might happen to perchance to fasten on. For the nature of good and evil is eternal and certain and their value cannot be determined either by the public ordinances of men or by any private opinion. That's a pretty bold statement. But once again... We can go further back to Plato or Aristotle, to whom even Locke himself would be influenced by. And what about Cicero? And are these names familiar to anyone there out there at all? I hope so. All of these referred to this principle, all of these historical figures, they referred to this principle of a natural law which governs all of humanity. In his own writings, we find uh, this view of truth and morality are not all that different from these others. Well, Plato, we're talking about here. True law is right reason in agreement with nature. It is of universal application, unchanging and everlasting. We cannot be freed from its obligations by Senate of people, and we need not look outside of ourselves for An expounder or interpreter of it and he goes on to say that this law is quote but one eternal and unchangeable law that will be valid for all nations and at all times and there will be one master and ruler that is god over us all for he is the author of this law that's again just another bold statement Now, to some, all of this may not matter at all. Who cares about a few men who are now relics, who are dead? It matters since these principles of truth, morality, and the law of nature transcend history and nations and have influenced the present in the formation of America and our way of life. So, if one denies these principles... The question then becomes, what is the basis for our existence? What would be some of your answers, and what would you say? I'm genuinely interested because the idea of there being a God who rules over all and created us all is not at all acceptable to many on the basis that all of us are accountable to this power and that our morality then being defined or regulated by this universal law of nature actually is oppressive. That's what a postmodernist would say. And then my question is, well, what's oppressive about it? Most of us would agree that murder is morally wrong. If I murder, am I truly free? I'm free to choose to murder if I want to. Not only do I become oppressed, though, by my own actions, by the choices I make, but I oppress others by robbing a family a group of friends, a community of of, of a life that was valued and treasured, that same family or community would call for justice, that I be judged and receive my rightful due. And that sentiment of justice, that a wrong should be righted, that a criminal get what he or she deserves, is proof of that natural law working within us. Those instincts that we feel when we see an injustice done is... Aren't the masses today calling for more social justice? Where does that come from? It isn't just a law of society, but one of life itself. It's inalienable, self-evident. The value and preservation of all life is a sacred thing, but it comes, it has to come from somewhere. It has to come from someone. Otherwise, how can we justify and believe that we are all created equal? In the recent film, The Shack, I was personally impacted by the scene in which the main character, Mackenzie, a father who lost his young daughter to a horrific crime, comes face to face with his demons. I'm sure a lot of you uh, have either read the, uh, the book or seen the movie, um, but if you haven't, you need to watch it. Anyway... His daughter uh, is kidnapped. She's abused and murdered. So, Mackenzie, the main character of the story, the father, he of course becomes angry and bitter, and especially towards God. One of the strongest arguments made by skeptics about God, um, about God not existing, is that there is evil. A God who is good and who claims to be all-powerful and benevolent could not possibly allow evil to exist. Therefore, he can't exist. Besides that, if he does exist, then surely he's to blame since he started all of this in the first place. He was responsible for creating all life. And here we are in the reality where hatred Bigotry, pain, and death exist. Once again, we come back to the original premise. How can God exist if there is evil? But by the very admission that there is evil, again, if you're going to say, if you're going to make a moral judgment, if you admit that there is evil, then you already assume that there's good. Therefore, you're admitting to and recognizing a moral framework. And therefore, if there is a moral framework, where did it come from? There must be a framer of this moral framework. It's unavoidable, especially once you start passing judgment on the actions of others. And here's the kicker. When we pass judgment on others, whether it be our leaders, whether it be our family members. We all pass judgments every single day on each other. Now, Mackenzie, going back to the story of the shack, he's led to a trail that he must walk alone. He's led to a cave where he finds a woman. Now, this is in the middle of the movie. And I, I don't want to give... I'm, I've already given too much away, if you haven't seen it. um. But anyway... As he walks this path of of sorrow and questioning God, he's led to a cave where he finds a woman sitting on what can only be described as a throne. The woman represents wisdom and judgment. By this time, he's already confronted God face to face and accused him of being heartless and cruel, since he did not prevent his daughter's senseless death. Now, this is something that a lot of us can relate to, the loss of a loved one, be it a daughter, a a son, a husband, a wife, a friend, a a father or a mother. And a lot of us have questioned God, being that he's all-powerful and all-loving, why didn't you prevent it? Well, this is the question Mackenzie has put to God. And as he begins to speak to this woman, she asks him, you don't believe that God is good? To which he responds, if Missy, this is his daughter, the one that was killed, if Missy is God's child, then no, God doesn't love his children very well. Now on face value, it seems like a pretty good point Mackenzie makes. Now at this point, the woman stands up from her chair and offers Mackenzie to come and take her place. She offers him a moment to be the judge. A bit hesitant at first, he decides to take her place on this throne of judgment. And who am I supposed to judge, he asks. And she begins to list um, different individuals and show him all of those who would most obviously be considered deplorable and worthy of condemnation. Why don't we play a little clip of the movie so you can understand the setting and get to the point that we're trying to make.
1: You don't believe that God is good? It's Missy his child? Of course. And no. I don't think God loves his children very well. If that's what you believe, come, sit. You can judge me fine from there. Judge you? Mm Mm-hmm. Do you have something to confess? Uh, You know what I did? Yes, but you're not the one on trial. Today, you are the judge. What? Why are you surprised? You spent your whole life judging nearly everyone and everything, their actions and motivations, as if you could even know them. You make snap judgments just by the color of someone's skin, their clothes, their body language. By all accounts, you're a well-practiced expert, Mackenzie. Sit. All right. Who am I supposed to judge? There must be at least a few who are to blame for all the pain and suffering in the world. Right? Uh Uh What about the selfish? The greedy. Those who harm others. Murderers? Drug dealers? Terrorists? Guilty? Yeah. What about men who beat their wives? Here, what did you say? Her father's who beat their sons to alleviate their own suffering. Let's not do this. Should that man be judged? Yeah. I know. What about this boy? What about him? Would you judge him? He's a kid. But you already have. That boy is your father. The man who preys on innocent little girls. Daddy! Daddy! Look at this. Is that man guilty? I would damn him now. And what of his father? The man who twisted him into this deviant monster. I would damn him, too. How can you stop there? Doesn't the legacy of brokenness go all the way back to Adam? And what about God? Isn't he at fault? He set all this emotion. Especially if he knew the outcome. Don't you know want say it. Absolutely. God is to blame. Well, if it's so easy for you to judge God, you must choose one of your children to spend eternity in heaven. The other will go to hell. can can't. can't do what? I'm only asking you to do something you believe God does. So? Who will go to hell? You could choose Kate. She said some pretty hurtful things. She shuts you out. You're not even sure if she loves you anymore. Or, you could choose Josh. He's being disobedient, sneaking out lying to you? You didn't know that. Mackenzie, make your choice. I won't do this anymore. I can't do this. Can't do what? I can. I will You must. This isn't a game you have to you know what this isn't fair you must You you, you leave my kids alone, and you take me.
0: Don't we all do that? Doesn't society do that? With cops that shoot the innocent, there are cries for justice. With politicians or a president, who are, and may be corrupt or morally questionable there are calls for impeachment or to be put in jail if there is no morality then why the moral outrage by society at large and yes what about the innocent why would a god who is good allow for such atrocities he is he has the power to stop it does he not Therefore, he is either evil or does not exist. But every time we make a moral judgment on others or on God, we already acknowledge there is good and evil. Therefore, we acknowledge, whether we like it or not, a framework that governs all life. And in the process, we also acknowledge that God does, in fact, exist. Mackenzie wasn't comfortable after She showed him what he needed to see. But he was willing. He was willing to sacrifice himself. Forget about religion or dogma. Let's just focus on the being, the person. Forget about what organized religion says. What of the reality of the person, the being of God? What of the reality of our existence? And why is it that evil does exist? And if God isn't evil, why does he allow evil? Yeah, these are questions that I've asked and I still ask them. And I'm sure that most of you listening have asked or are asking these questions. It's part of the journey of life. To ask these questions, they're unavoidable, they're necessary, and they're not easy ones. And while the evidence thus far points to a natural law that is universal, and that logically then points to a being who made this law or this moral framework by which we judge others, I know that there are many that still cannot accept the existence of this being we call God. And I'm not saying you have to. (laughs) I'm simply saying, ask the question. Keep asking the question. Because the science on this, the answer on this, is far from settled.